Uh, this morning, we're going to move into Palm Sunday, which kicks off Holy Week and commemorates Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem in Passover, the last week of his life. And it also marks the last Sunday before Good Friday, where we'll gather here on Friday night to reflect on Jesus's death, his crucifixion, and then to get ready to celebrate his resurrection and all that it means on Easter. Thus, it also marks the last week of our series for Lent, Open Your Eyes, in which we've sat with this section from Matthew 23, where Jesus proclaims seven scary woes, this mixed cry of compassion, lament, and warning against Israel's religious leaders over religious hypocrisy. The ways that we use our religion to hide our brokenness rather than heal it and thus miss the kingdom of God. And we've seen that these woes actually offer us this powerful invitation right underneath their challenge. They invite us to open our eyes to our own religious hypocrisies where we have missed the kingdom and hidden from its truth. Not for the purpose of shame, not to hate ourselves, but rather so that we can identify these areas, so that we can name them, so that we can fast from them. And in doing so, learn what it means to embrace Jesus's vision of kingdom integrity on the other side of Easter, to become people whose character, words, and deed overlap. And so far, they've challenged us. Have they challenged you guys? Yeah? It's been a pretty challenging series for me. They've challenged me to fast from wearing masks so I can experience healing in those deep broken areas of my life. They've challenged me to fast from self-deception so I can embrace this self-honesty about my character defects so that I can stop overflowing with harm onto others in these areas I haven't named so I can release them to God and he can heal them, transform us where it matters most and change how we interact with our world from the inside out. It's challenged me to fast from judging others, instead taking responsibility for my shortcomings, owning my side of the street. And finally, it's challenged me to fast from turning my religion into a checklist that I check off boxes every week. Instead, it calls me to embrace a radical, faithful pursuit of justice and mercy in every part of my life and world. And it's been intense, but again, for me, incredibly powerful. In this last week, I actually wanna start with one central idea, and that is the age-old advice to never meet your heroes. Don't do it. Now, I don't actually have great stories about this, but I have noticed that we as human beings love to put the people who inspire us on pedestals, do we not? Yes, yes. come on guys. I know, it takes a while. You're not used to this. <laughs> but we can't help ourselves, right? We just love to do it. Which means that more often than not, when we actually meet the people who inspire us, who move us, well, they almost always let us down. See, we just can't help it. Now, again, personally, I don't have many great stories about this. Once at UF, I sat next to Aaron Hernandez, which yikes, that was a pretty scary moment in hindsight. I also met Tim Tebow once, and quite frankly, he was very nice, but probably not someone I was gonna have a deep theological conversation with. I love you, Tim. I swear, he's a good man, but he was what I expected. But this week, I found myself going down the rabbit hole, perusing Reddit, 
where I found a number of very interesting threads about people who met their heroes and found them to be lacking. Now, I'm not sure if any of these are true. The internet is the internet. I also am not gonna talk about the ones that were frankly awful. Some were abusive, included wildly inappropriate behavior. I'm gonna talk about the ones that I thought were really funny. Does that sound good? So, first one. A guy described how at the age of four, his mom took him to meet Batman, his favorite superhero. He was told that he would get to sit in the Batmobile, he would get to shake Batman's hand, and he would get to get a photo with him, the whole nine yards. And he remembered loving it. Well, when he was 30, he went back to his mother and he said, what was that event like? I really remember it quite fondly. And his mother informed him tragically that it was actually just a promotion at a local grocery store first. Second, that Batman was just a middle-aged fat guy who was balding. And third, that the Batmobile was actually a run-down Corvette with cardboard mods stapled to it. Which ruined his memory, believe it or not. <laughs> Don't meet your heroes. This is the second one. This girl loved Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So at seven, she went to an event where the real Salem was gonna be there as a special guest. Now, if you don't know Salem, this was the magical cat from the show that talked and baked cakes, and I didn't watch it, I don't know. Well, she gets there and discovers a few things. First, as it turns out, there are multiple Salem cat actors playing this part. Second, and this is worse, it turns out that the cat's not magical. In fact, it's just a cat. And that was devastating <laughs> to this young girl to learn this truth about her hero. Don't meet your heroes. Now this one's brutal, it's short and sweet, so I'm just gonna read it. John Stockton told me I shouldn't eat so much bread when I met him for the first time as a little kid. Savage, don't meet your heroes. <laughs> and there's many more, stories of Philip Rivers dunking on someone in a pool, barbecue, volleyball game, all sorts of funny stories. But what I found most interesting was how many positive stories there were about these encounters. Some people just ignored the rules of the thread and just told beautiful stories about the heroes they met. More often though, even in the threads about the stories with heroes who failed them, someone would pop in and share about how that person in their experience had been quite kind. Even in some of the worst experiences, what you found is that these stories ended with that hero apologizing, coming back to them, saying, I'm sorry, I, you just caught me at a bad moment in a bad day, and ultimately having a really positive conversation. I noticed that the difference for most of these, at least those that weren't abusive, came down to a simple thing, and that was the author's expectations. More often than not, it had nothing to do with the person. It had to do with the fact that they expected one thing and got something else. And that struck me. You see, I think more often than not, we shouldn't meet our heroes, not because they're secretly monsters, but because our expectations for them will almost always get in the way of actually embracing them as human beings. Because it turns out that they're just people, or in some cases, cats, right? They're just people who sometimes have bad days who sometimes don't want random people barging into their personal space and asking them from stuff, interrupting a conversation they're having. They're sometimes just broken. People who even if perfect still wouldn't meet 100% of our expectations. And thus they will always, always, always disappoint, upset, 
or anger us when we actually meet them because they just aren't who we wanted them to be. Has anyone had that experience? Come on. There's an actual response, yes or no, I know. Good gravy, guys. It's like riding a bike, right? Anyway, anyway, this is front and center for where we're going today. You see, this passage that we're gonna explore, as we shall see, asks us some challenging questions about what happens when we meet Jesus as he actually is. What expectations do we hold about Jesus or his message that don't ultimately jive with who he is when he arrives? And are we willing to let him surprise and challenge us when he doesn't live up to who we wanted him to be? When he turns our expectations for religion upside down? And more so, what happens if we refuse to do that? If instead we take his upending of those expectations as an attack, rejecting his message, his challenge, his invitation, because he just isn't who we want him to be. This sets the table for our final woe, which acts as this conclusion to the other six. It's in my opinion, the most intense one, speaking to what Jesus believes happens when these warnings about religious hypocrisy and spiritual blindness go un heard, when we choose to feed these things and let our expectations lead us to see Jesus's loving challenge and invitation as a threat, ultimately rejecting it, ultimately missing the kingdom. We pick up in Matthew 23, verse 29. Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. So Jesus focuses on one final performance of religious hypocrisy by Israel's religious leaders. He says that they outwardly express esteem for these guys called the prophets, while inwardly, in reality, being exactly like the people who killed them. Now to really get what Jesus is getting at, we need to start with who the prophets were. And if you were attending E3 in the fall, we actually did a series on the Old Testament prophets called What a Wonderful World that you can find on our Vimeo or our podcast. But to summarize for today, the prophets were these intense figures in Israel's history. They were important people called by God to be messengers to his people, often to deliver a very difficult message. And that's because they pop up when God's people or Israel reject their calling to be a blessing to the world, instead choosing paths of destruction, war, greed, and justice. In other words, they arrive at moments in the story where Israel is driving their car straight towards a cliff. And they're sent by God in his love to call his people to stop. See what you're doing, go a different way. Often offering warnings and woes, ding, ding, to urge them to change course before it's too late. It's an important but miserable job if you read your Bible. The prophets were sad sacks because they were almost universally rejected, persecuted, and even killed by Israel's leaders in their era. It turns out that people in power don't like you challenging their power. I don't know if anyone has seen that in our world. 
They weren't too keen on that. So prophets often led miserable lives, which is tragic because silencing prophets doesn't make their message any less true. Just making them shut up doesn't ignore the brokenness that is being pointed out. Ignoring them often leads Israel to disaster. They lose wars. They ultimately fall into paths of idolatry. They even go into exile at the end of the Old Testament. The most devastating moment in Israel's history that the prophets desperately tried to get them to avoid. And Jesus centers this well around these figures. First, talking about how the prophets were venerated in their day. And archaeology actually helps us understand this. You see, there's evidence that during the first century, Israel's religious leaders had begun building elaborate monuments to these historical figures, especially the prophets. It's kind of like what we do today, right? If there's an important figure in our history, we'll make a statue or a monument or a memorial marking where they were buried or where they did something important as a way of honoring them, of saying we respect these people for their role in our history. That's what Jesus is referring to which sent a clear message, as Jesus points out, right? That these current religious leaders believe very strongly that they would have been on the right side of history. That if they had been around back then when the prophets were active, they would have listened. They would have changed. They would have embraced Jesus or embraced the prophets and their message. They would have repented and saved the day unlike their stupid, dumb, evil ancestors, right? You tracking with me on that? Which for Jesus is utterly untrue hypocritical nonsense. Recall, why is Jesus levying these woes in the first place? Because he's experienced nothing but rejection and conflict from these religious leaders of his day. They've been furious with him over how he's turned upside down their expectations for who the Messiah was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. We talked about this in week one. They expected him to be a warrior king, come to defeat their enemies, the Romans. And yet he showed up and preached love, peace, mercy giving, love your enemies. Does that jive with going to war with the Romans? Yikes. They expected him to bring judgment down upon those people they deemed sinners. And instead he ate with them. He said, I love you. He healed them. He invited them in. Over and over again, he subverted their expectations and they got more and more mad about that. He just wasn't who they wanted him to be. Escalating conflict that climaxed as we saw in Matthew 21, when he strolls into Jerusalem at the height of Passover as the Messiah, and then begins publicly challenging their leadership with his own critical prophetic message that they fundamentally missed the point of who God is and who he wants them to be. And it's leading them to yet another disaster in Israel's history. A war with Rome that Jesus says would betray everything God wants his people to be and will leave Israel in ruins. In other words, he's had nothing but conflict created by the fact that he's going around acting like a prophet. And have Israel's religious leaders embraced him in his message? Yes or no? That's a hard no, dog. No, they've doubled down. They've rejected him outright. In fact, we learned recently in Matthew that they're plotting to kill him, an innocent man, to have him arrested and executed as a traitor to the state on a Roman cross. And the only reason why is because they have not liked his message. And Jesus knows this. 
This whole charade is absurd in his mind. It's ridiculous. They outwardly honor the prophets, but their true motives are in blatant contrast to these displays. They're plotting to kill the prophet right in front of them of their day, simply because they don't like what he has to say. And Jesus says to them, nice monuments, but you're not on the right side of history. You're not the good guys. You're in the lineage of the people who killed those people. And you're leading Israel once again towards the cliff. He looks at these religious people and I think what he sees is scapegoating. Does anyone here know what scapegoating is? Scapegoating is something that we do to cope with big, complex, unresolvable fears. See, what our brain does is it seeks to deal with them by taking these complex, stressful problems and simplifying them into something easy and resolvable, which sounds really harmless, does it not? But it is actually incredibly dangerous. See, because here's the thing. The problem remains complex. It's only our perception of it that simplifies. Usually, what we do to make this happen is we just simplify and exaggerate the blame for the problem and what's needed to resolve it, to make that simple thing go away. That will fix everything. See, it makes us create these formulas that go a little something like this. If we could just get rid of blank, then everything would be good again. Has anyone found themselves thinking in that way before? Filling in that blank, more often than not, with just a mixture of our resentments, our fears, and whatever came along to trigger that stress. We tell ourselves that it, the scapegoat, is the whole problem. And if we could just get rid of it, well, then everything that has gone wrong will go away too. And then we fervently act as if that's true, even though it's a delusion. And the results are disastrous, y'all. It's easier to see on societal levels with events like the Holocaust, right? You have this whole complex issue going on in Germany with the economy, with politics, with the First World War. And what does Hitler come along and do? He says, if we could just get rid of the Jews, everything would be good again. It's so easy to see on that level, but y'all, we do this in our personal lives too. Anyone ever been in a complex, fearful situation, a broken relationship and found yourself blaming just one person that you already didn't like for all of it? Man, my life would be perfect if I could just get rid of Joe. He's the worst. That's scapegoating. Do you see how this works? Would getting rid of Joe actually fix every problem in your life? No, but it's so easy to think it would and then to act on that. Some of the worst things we do as human beings comes down to this when we scapegoat rather than own the complexity of what's in front of us, rather than sit in the uncertainty of how to resolve it. And y'all, the easiest people in this world to scapegoat are prophets. Their job is to be disruptors of public and social consensus. Their job is to look at what everyone assumes is true, what we've all gone together and agreed on, and they walk up and say, nope, that's wrong. That's all bad. It's actually the opposite of what you think it is. Their job is to walk into situations and address things like power, oppression, and greed, which is usually benefiting people on top. And they come up to those people and go, get rid of all of that. Their job, 
is to point out the brokenness we need to see but don't want to see in a society. Things we benefit from even as they make us sick. Those satisfying, comfortable absolutes that deep down are actually broken. That like I said, we all agreed on are fine and we don't wanna look at too closely. The prophets stroll in and tell us that they're not and that they have to change or disaster is coming. Y'all, that's prime scapegoating material, is it not? That's what happens to Jesus. He showed up out of nowhere Galilee, out of Wakulla, essentially. This random guy comes out of Wakulla, Galilee, and begins challenging Israel's structures of power and social hierarchy. He begins challenging their understanding of their divine exceptionalism. God's on your side. They begin challenging their systems of oppression and greed and how they treat the poor. He begins challenging how they desire to dehumanize their enemies, their lust for war. He went around inviting in, healing and loving all the wrong people, teaching all the wrong theological things, challenging all the agreed upon values and telling the super religious, powerful folks that run their society that how they think God works and how they should live out their faith has fundamentally missed the point of religion entirely. Do you think that guy is popular? Do you think it's easy to make that guy a scapegoat? <laughs> That's what, that what currently is benefiting them. This course that they believe God is approved of, that it's leading them to disaster. And now he's coming to Jerusalem at the most packed religious ceremony of the year. He's riled up the crowds. There are Roman soldiers everywhere who are just waiting to crush Israel if they even whiff a scent of upheaval. Imagine you're one of those leaders. How easy do you think it would be to scapegoat that guy? To begin thinking, you know, if we could just get rid of this one troublemaker, then everything would be great again. You know, no more public condemnation, no more Roman threat. We can go back to how things were before, the good old days. Wouldn't it be easy to take all that complex blame and place it solely on to Jesus? This guy who hasn't met any of your expectations for the Messiah, this guy who has done nothing but challenge your core beliefs and turn everything upside down. Do y'all think it would be easy? I think it would be incredibly easy for me to blame that one person for all of it. Jesus confronts their brokenness, their hypocrisies, their blindness. He invites them to change, but this other path is just easier. Create the scapegoat and the rest is history. And y'all, as always, scapegoating doesn't actually solve anything. The brokenness, the hypocrisy, the blindness, it all remains. It just goes unseen. And guess what? Eventually in 66 AD, a guy comes along who does fancy himself to be a warrior messiah. And he riles Israel up. He meets all their expectations. He leads Israel to war. And guess what happens? Jerusalem is utterly destroyed by the Roman empire because it turns out Rome's just better at that sort of thing than a small nation in the middle of the Middle East. It's a disaster. It's the worst moment in Israel's history. And y'all, this passage preached to me as I sat with it this week. We as humans generally and American Christians particularly, should be challenged by passages like this. We want to imagine that we are infallible, 
that we are always right, that we're always on the right side of history, that we're always people who if Jesus walked in that door, he would just walk up and we'd be thrilled because he'd no doubt just pat us on the back and say, great job, well done, you nailed it. We make big churches. We put billboards up and down the interstate. We hold tightly to our public displays of prayer and righteousness. We put crosses and the 10 commandments everywhere we can, which can be good stuff. Don't hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying, but not if we haven't taken seriously the challenge to reflect on where we've missed the point and are still missing it. Not if we haven't repented from where we've embraced our society's idols. Not if we haven't let Jesus heal our own prejudices and hypocrisies. Not if there's brokenness that we've ignored because we just don't want to see it. Our own sacred cows of injustice, greed, racism, violence, hate, tribalism. Jesus would say, nice monuments. And then he'd lovingly, but strongly challenge us to remember a few things. He challenged us to remember that Caesar is not our king. That our wealth is not our own. That a society that oppresses the poor cannot be just in God's eyes. He'd ask us to look at how we treat people like prisoners, the homeless, the impoverished, the hungry, the sick, the naked, the foreigner, the marginalized, the broken. And he'd say, hey, how you treat that person is how you would have treated me, regardless of what your billboard says. He would tell us that seeking worldly power and control is antithesis to what he did when he showed up and who he calls us to be as his people. I think he would tell us that we have no right to judge, condemn, or exclude anyone, no matter how much they don't jive with our values or who we want them to be. He would tell us to look at our own mess and to deal with that first, to look at the people that we find so easy to call our enemies and to recognize that they are people made in the image of God whom we must love and seek the blessing of, end of story, full stop, period. Can I get an amen? He challenged us to take off our masks, especially those we find most comfortable and most materially beneficial, the ones that we want to surrender the least. And all we can do is ask, would we listen? Or would we remain blind? Choose instead to double down on our own hypocrisies and then scapegoat and kill the messenger instead of waiting into that mess because one of those paths is a lot easier than the one that Jesus calls us to go down. These are the hard questions that Matthew 23 closes by asking us. These are the hard questions that it builds to and begs us to answer with real self-honesty and to change course if we don't like what we see. Again, it's not for shame. I don't want any of you guys to feel ashamed. That's useless. It doesn't change anything. No, he does it, but because we're invited to be something new. We're invited to be something more. Does anyone want something more in their life and world in this year? Am I alone on that? Anyone look at how the world works, how the church interacts with it and says, I want something more in this year. I want to see God heal this too. Does anyone want that this year? I know I do. I mean, Jesus would say to us, I know you want to keep that mask, but you have to give it to me because it's making you sick and you're invited to go a different way. 
It's a hard pill to swallow, but y'all, it's medicine. And that's the beauty of the prophetic message. It may feel like a gut punch, but the other way it offers is beautiful, beautiful, redemptive hope. If we would just open our eyes and listen. That's what I'm challenging myself to reflect on as I head into Good Friday and I sit at the foot of the cross. And I invite y'all to join me. Walk with me to the cross and let's lay down there our hypocrisies. Let's lay down the brokenness we don't wanna see in name. Let's lay down the blindness we've fed. Let's lay down the scapegoats we've made. Let's lay them down on Good Friday. Because here's the good news. When you do, it's finished. It's done. It's buried. The gospel tells us that when we come here on Easter, we need to be ready to celebrate the fact that our God takes our fasting, our loss, our grief, our failures, and creates abundant life with it. That on Easter, what we learned is one fundamental truth, that our God is a God that resurrects new life out of what looks dead. And that that is good news for people hurting and lost in this world. Amen? So I invite you this week, y'all, come to the cross. Open your eyes, lay it down. And let's experience resurrection this year on Easter so we can be resurrection in a world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs new life. Will y'all pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for being a God who's not afraid to tell us where we've missed the mark not because you want us to hate ourselves, not because you hate us, but because you love us so much and because you believe that we can be something more, that we can be people who experience resurrection, new life, transformation, and that we can be hope to a world that seems so dark sometimes. Help us move out of this season with renewed energy to be your people, to be transformed in your image and likeness, to go into the world and become pockets of you and the world that you want to make. God, we pray that we would take seriously your challenge and let it lead us to your love. We love you, God. We ask that you just be with us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.